720 WGN. Hey there, it's Amy Guth here on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Thanks for being with us today. Always grateful to you for sharing part of your Saturday with me, as ever. Lots to do on the show today. We're going to be talking a little bit about some of those big changes we've seen to the Twitter platform. A lot of people have a lot of opinions about those, so we're going to be talking about them. And we're going to take a look at... There is a type of restaurant that is perhaps diminishing a bit. It's disappearing a bit here in Chicago. And so we're going to take a look at that and look at look at uh, what what remains of Jewish deli culture in Chicago. But before we do all of that, there is a really, really interesting story that is in Washington Post. It was written by Aaron Gregg, who is a reporter there and who, who wrote about the there's this really fascinating lawsuit. And when we're looking at the very quickly changing media landscape, just recently here in Chicago, we saw that impact DNA info. We, you know, we see this happen a lot. We see quick changes to the media landscape. But this is a really fascinating story uh, about a blogger that is being being hit with this threat to to for of a lawsuit that is really quite interesting and complicated. It reads almost like a soap opera, but here to break it down for us, please welcome to the program, Aaron Gregg. Thanks for being with us today, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Well, I got a bit tongue-tied introducing this story even because it's so complicated and so interesting, but it, it yeah. really does kind of read like a soap opera. It's a head-scratcher for sure. So, um... Basically, the the background here is that DCS was shut down last week, as we've all um, as, as we all know. Um, DNA Info is parent company of DCS. Didn't acquired that blog, didn't found it, but acquired it through a um, through a through a merger. Um, but what's happened here is that this guy Aaron Myers, who actually is not a full time journalist, he's he's actually a jazz singer who uh, he. Um, you know, does jazz shows all around DC area. If you're active in that community, you definitely know him. He just decided, you know, I'm really mad about this, and I'm going to start a blog called DC is Now, which pretty close to the DC is domain name. But he um, basically decided, I don't care if they own the trademark. I'm going to do this anyway, and um, you know, that's it. <laughs> right, right. And, and DCist, of course, uh, for people, you know, who aren't familiar, perhaps we're, we're in the realm here of like Chicagoist, Gothamist, all of those, uh, that realm of, yeah. of website and, and DCist, of course, super popular. But yeah, anytime you maybe add now to a, to a name that is trademarked, you're, you're probably going to get a little bit of pushback, certainly. And this gets into, uh, uh, or at least the, the allegation here is that it's getting into uh, violating anti-cyber squatting Consumer Protection Acts that is one that we don't discuss often, but when it comes up, I, I, for some reason, whenever it comes up, it's always an interesting story attached to it. It always seems like a really strange uh, um, act that only comes up in unusual circumstances. Yes. Well, it's an absurd word applied to absurd circumstances like this. <laughs> well put, right. And so talk us through that uh, that law a little bit for those who might not be familiar. Sure. So basically what cyber squatting is, is where you squat on a domain name that is not yours legally. Um, so Ricketts and DNA Info are basically alleging that because they own the brand of DCist and they have, according to their letter, they've built goodwill through that brand, although um, lately it doesn't seem like a lot of goodwill right. uh, thrown at them over this. But um, anyway, they're basically saying, we own that brand, and you are piggybacking off of our brand, and so we're going to sue you for $100,000. 
And and so, how far along has this has this case gotten? And what do we what do we what is the kind of the sentiment of it right now as far as how you think it's going to shake out? So this is just at the very early stages. There are, haven't even been any formal papers filed yet. All we've seen is a cease and desist letter uh, sent to Aaron Myers. I you know after I saw that he had started this site, I literally just flagged him down in the middle of sets in his jazz show, and he said, "Yeah, I, I got the cease and desist letter." He said, "I'm not going to back down." He's basically said. I don't have any money, and there's not much they can take from me, so I might as well just hold my ground for the people of D.C. So, uh, to be honest with you, it's hard to imagine that he has too strong of a case, given that there's like three letters separating the two (laughs) names. And, yeah, and he says in the blog, like, I'm doing this to replace DCS, but he is utterly determined not to back down, even though, you know, we're talking about pretty hefty fees here for, for a musician that admittedly cannot pay them. Right. Yeah. When we, when we think about journalism and and jazz musicians, it's probably not real (laughs) high up there on the, on the pay scale. No, no. Two professions no one gets into for the money, certainly. And so is this a solo act? Is he doing this all on his own or is he, um, um, right. Or does he have other bloggers working with him on this? No, no. He's, he, that's the thing about this guy is he's a very adept community organizer within the jazz community. And so he knows a lot of people around town, knows a lot of these local journalists that, you know, cover these things and write about them and and um, puts these events together. So he he's last time I checked the site, there were a fair amount of people from, you know, Washington City Paper and other local publications who were doing guest blogs on this. He He's not paying them yet, however, which I think is going to be a limitation uh, for the ability of DCS now, even if the lawsuit is thrown out. I think that's going to limit their ability to really do anything, because the reason DCS was so great was they had these full-time journalists who were really busy all the time and were everywhere, and, and they had their bills paid by uh, Joe Ricketts' company. Uh, Aaron Myers isn't doing that, at least not yet. Right, right. Well, you do have to admire his stance on the whole thing. Like, you know what? You can't get blood from a turnip. I might as well, you know, go all in here and see what happens. So I, I suppose the brazenness exactly. is a bit admirable. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see how this continues to unfold, uh, to see how far exactly this goes. But we, we will keep turning to you at Washington Post for the latest on this. So thanks I appreciate so, that. Thanks so much for being with us today, Aaron Gregg. Of course. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. So we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we are going to be talking about perhaps is Jewish deli culture vanishing in Chicago? Many things to discuss there. Many types of sandwiches and soups to discuss along with it. Back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. Seven twenty WGN. Hey, it's Amy Guth here on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Thanks for being with us today. Lots to do on the program today. After the 1230 News, we're going to be talking all about some of those big changes that have come to the Twitter platform, because a lot of people have some mighty strong opinions about those changes. So we're going to be talking all about that with an expert. But before we do that, there is a really, really interesting and fun story that is in the Chicago Tribune right now. It is by Louisa Chu, who is a reporter at the Tribune, and it is all about the perhaps vanishing Jewish deli culture in Chicago. Louisa, thank you so much for being with us today. I appreciate you sharing part of your Saturday with us. 
Thank you so much, Amy. I really appreciate it. So talk us through this story. This really grabbed my eye. I I was a a big fan of Steve's Deli and mourned its loss very, very deeply when it closed its doors, even though it has rebooted and it's a perfectly fine establishment now. I read the story with great interest. And so what, what sparked this story initially for you? Well, it's part of our new reader question series uh, where we invite readers to submit a question and then our editors might let us reporters go out to um, report the story. So this came in from a reader uh, named Susan Wolf, and she had a question about um, where she could find a good corned beef and chicken soup in the Gold Coast area. Kind of simple. Uh, and um, answering the question for her um, Goddess and Grocer in the Gold Coast has not only really good corned beef, but they also have a mile high Reuben uh, plus chicken soup, including every single day matzo ball soup. Um, but when I talked to her, talked to the reader more, it turned out that she was really asking about what happened to all the Jewish delis, um, you know, the really big Jewish deli culture that seemed so prevalent here in Chicago. And so then I went on uh, a quest. And um, so that uh, luckily my editors let me have uh, the freedom and patience to go to, you know, we talk about Chicago not really being a deli town, a lot of people, but I went to currently um, 19 different places and um, ate 20 different sandwiches, mostly corned beef, some pastrami, um, plus one pastrami spiced trout. Uh, and um, discovered that not only is there still an amazing Jewish deli culture, but it's actually uh, transforming into what they call uh, the new restaurants, newish delis. The newish, I like that. And, right. <laughs> and, and so, what when you're looking at the newish delis, what yeah. what is the key difference of them? How are they rebooted? They include kind of more of international influences. For example, um, one of the first uh, is Steingold uh, over in North Center on Irving Park. And um, they have not only the classic sandwiches with uh, corned beef and pastrami, but um, they're the place that I had the pastrami spice trout. And um, he also actually has what he calls a sister-in-law sandwich, which is actually a nod to his actual sister-in-law that includes uh, not only the smoked meats, but uh, kimchi. And um, it's kind of makes sense when you think of sauerkraut and kimchi, it's sort of all sort of the same family. And um, yeah, and so it's kind of amazing how there's really that transformation. There's actually a few other ones that just opened um, after my story came out. Plus, there's there's a few more coming up. Um, So, uh, you know, so there's actually quite a quite a big movement towards that, too. So plenty, just perhaps well hidden. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny, because you think uh, I, I keep hearing again is that people can, oh, Chicago's not a deli town. But um, like I said, I heard from a lot of people who wondered why I didn't go to, for example, the bagel. I did go to the bagel. Uh, um, I went to the location in Old Orchard, which is actually, uh, you know, huge mm-hmm. and older than the location that's in Lakeview and has a history that dates back to 1950. Um, but um, it didn't make the story itself, since it was kind of focused on this reader's question, and I wish I could have mentioned every single one because there were so many that were so influential. Um, plus, I also went to um, Eleven City Diner, which is kind of bridged between the older deli and the newer deli, not quite uh, old and not quite newish, um, and um, has that location that's in the South Loop area and had the second location up in Lincoln Park as well. And so... Um, they're there. They're here. Yeah. And so I think it's maybe because a lot of people, 
understandably, like you, you know, had their favorite deli um, that they loved going to with their family, maybe when they grew up or, you know, and maybe it's closed or changed. And so maybe people feel that loss and kind of feel like, oh, you know, delis are gone. They're not gone. They're definitely here. They're here. We're just overlooking them. Well, I'm glad you mentioned 11 City because 11 City is an interesting one in particular because it is newish, but it puts so much effort into looking like the classic. It looks vintage (laughs) and and so charming inside. Exactly. Everything from when you first walk in, uh, there's a candy counter on one side and there's actual deli counter, uh, which a lot of these uh, Jewish style delis don't actually have a deli counter, which used to be really important um, as part of not only the culture, but actually identifying it as a deli as well as then, don't get me started about uh, Jewish and kosher style foods, because that's a whole other area too. Right, whole other um, show. Yep, exactly. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> maybe station. <laughs> yeah. But, um, and, but yeah, absolutely. They have um, the older style, but um, they have cocktails too, you know I mean? So definitely kind of, you know, bridges that gap as well. Certainly, certainly. And of course, I was very happy to see that Manny's made that list. I feel like that's that's a go-to for so many people. That's one of those, even when you don't live near it anymore, you, you find a way back down there to, to visit Manny's. For sure. Manny's is maybe our most famous iconic deli now. And um, also has a history that dates back um, actually to uh, Greek town. But they themselves didn't actually open their deli counter until just last year. They celebrated their 75th anniversary this year. But even though you could always, insiders knew you could buy stuff by the pound, um, they didn't actually add that counter in until just recently, plus expanded, even though it does look, I think, looks pretty nice and um, uh, old but new. Uh, and um, some people kind of lamented, but, you know, what are you going to do? Right. The only downside of Manny's is that sometimes what's charming and wonderful about a deli is if you go with some people, you order a bunch of stuff and you you can kind of share a lot, you know, get many bites of many things. I think Manny's, the right. sandwiches are so giant. <laughs> you really can't. You got to commit. Right. You, you can, but they also have not only takeout boxes, but can I tell you, one of the things, again, Chicago being accused of not being a deli town, I'll tell you, having been raised in Chicago my entire life, but having gone to many of the iconic delis, for example, in New York, Manny does not have a split charge. A lot of those touristy restaurants charge you a split charge. And our big, giant deli sandwiches, they don't charge a split charge. That's so you, a big deal. So you can order one sandwich and have lunch and dinner. Right, exactly. And share. <laughs> right. Done. Nice. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. I really appreciate all this. And this is a great story. If you follow me on Twitter, I will be sure and tweet this story out after so all of you can get this wonderful list that Louisa Chu made for us. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Amy. Thank you. All right. So we're going to take a little break and then we're going to get you to news, all that good stuff. So back here in just a bit on 720 WGN. Seven twenty WGN. Hey there, it's Amy Guth here on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Thanks for being with us today. Always grateful to you for sharing part of your Saturday with me. I hope you are all bundled up and cozy wherever it is you're listening from today. So, still lots to do on the second half of the show. And you know, if you are a Twitter user, no doubt you have. It has been a very interesting place from the start, but certainly in the last year and in the last week, it has been even more interesting because there have been some platform changes. And any time there are platform changes, people get very upset 
We are programmed to not enjoy change very much as a people. Uh, I remember when Facebook changed the font of the Facebook logo, people lost their minds and thought they were going to abandon Facebook and all of these things. So this comes up a lot anytime there's change. But I will be the first to admit that this latest round of changes is a little different and it feels kind of weird. I'll be the first to admit. So joining us, we've hauled in an expert. We are joined by Kara Carroll, who does many, many things. She's a web developer. She's a community organizer. She knows she's your go-to tech person for sure. And we're going to talk with her about changing Twitter. Kara, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, Kara. So Twitter is changing the rules on us a little bit. For the longest, we've had this 140 character limit and it worked so well because we could, we had no choice but to kind of distill our thoughts down to the absolute marrow of the idea. But suddenly we have 280 characters. How are you feeling about that? Um, I have a few complicated feelings <laughs> about it. You know, uh, Twitter started out as a service that was uh, pinned down to an SMS uh, service. So that's kind of where the 140 characters came from. Um, so as they've expanded, they don't really have that kind of constraint anymore. So seeing the um, seeing that as not something that they have to really think about, you know, I, I can see how they've got through, um, you know, allowing people to have more capacity for speaking their mind on, on the platform. But, um I don't know. I, I really appreciated the, the brevity of the medium. Um, and I think a lot of people have as well. And I think that's been a lot of the conversation that's gone on in terms of being able to have so many more characters to say more things when, um, you know, it's really allowed for people to um, become better writers or become, you know, uh, more succinct communicators. So I think that there's... Um, kind of uh, a loss in, in terms of, of that. Uh, but I guess, you know, we'll we'll see how it works. I think with any feature that has been brought on in, in all the platforms, just as you mentioned with, with Facebook as well, um, you know, we don't like it and we get frustrated about it. There's um, different kinds of ramifications for those changes, but eventually people move on um, to, you know, utilizing the service as they always had. Right, right. Eventually we adapt or we get mad about something else. You know, I, I agree with you. I, I think I liked the brevity too. And um, I think the interesting thing we've seen on Twitter over the last, say, six or eight months or so has been the um, the habit of making threads. And that is simply you send the first tweet and then you start adding second and third tweets to the bottom of it so that if someone wants to click mm -hmm. through and read a longer string of thoughts, they can do so, but they're also free to ignore it. So when the 280 character limit rolled out, I opened my, you know, opened my phone and, and looked or opened the Twitter app and, and scrolled through my feed. And it was so long, it felt, you know, I, I will commit and sit down and read a paper or a book, but, but something about sitting there and, um, you know, what worked about Twitter for me was my ability to scan a lot of information quickly and stop and read deeply where I wanted to. And now it feels like I don't have a choice in a way. Right. I think that's been interesting seeing how people have taken to um, modifying their work to the fact that they have now 200 kd 280 characters to work with, you know, either by utilizing more space um, in terms of like, you know, new lines, breaking up the content or just putting out walls of text. Um, I know I've definitely felt um, an increased frustration looking at tweets and seeing 
you know, the full use. I, I've seen people say that they were still going to adhere to a shorter uh, character count with the tweets that they make. And I think that threads, as you mentioned, are really useful for being able to take little chunks of information. Um, and though you're reading, you know, what could end up being, you know, five to, you know, 40 different tweets, um, you know, it really allows you to go through the narrative in much clearer, succinct points, as opposed to getting walls of text where you're expected to just, um, you know, have that much attention in one space for one time. Um, yeah, we'll see how it goes. But um, I think uh, one thing I've definitely appreciated is seeing the way that people have been creative with utilizing the 280 characters with um, creating games like Connect Four or mm-hmm. playing chess with other character with other um, uh, Twitter followers. I think that's been an interesting take on on utilizing the uh, the character count. Right. I, I think it'll be interesting to see what it will do. Um, socially and culturally on Twitter. I mean, I think it'd be easy to say that won't have an impact. I think it will. You know, Twitter is such an interesting and essential organizing platform. We have seen so many moments in the last handful of years in which the role of social media played such an essential part. I mean, when when everything began to happen in Ferguson, before journalists could get there, the stories emerged because Twitter and because of video, because people were able to pull out their smartphones and and get live video of what was happening there. Uh, We saw this. We've seen this around the world. Arab Spring had like social media had a huge role there, particularly Twitter. So I think it'd be interesting to see, will it make it seem like it's moving slower? Will it will it do something in that regard? It remains to be seen. But but I immediately when I you know, I'm always thinking about the social impact of things. And so immediately when I saw that change, I I, I had that that question immediately come to mind. Yeah, I I definitely agree. I think that, um, yeah, we'll see how that also might change in terms of the way that um, different factions of our community utilizes uh, the platform in terms of the way, you know, journalists use that to, you know, deliver larger news pieces or, um, you know, will we see other kinds of industries utilizing that for um, for being able to kind of like report on um, what's going on within the, the companies or organizations or, or moments that they're having um yeah. Right. I mean, I wonder, too, you know, we talk so much about civility online and and how sometimes it's really uh, we tend to pre-censor ourselves, anticipating that kind of blowback from social media platforms. So I wonder about that, too. Mm-hmm. Now we have a, we've just given uh, perhaps not the most polite people a bigger stage in many cases, which brings me to my next thing I want to ask you about, Kara. And that is mm-hmm. Twitter's verification program. Kind of a mess from the start because it was it was pretty much shrouded in mystery. You know, it was it was this elusive blue check mark that that initially meant your identity has been verified and perhaps you had a little bit extra layer of security. A lot of journalists were given that just because it was a lot of people tried to, uh, you know, hack journalists, Twitter accounts and politicians and things like that. And so it's somewhere along the line, it became about importance and being, uh, you know, people got excited when they got verified as opposed to, you know, I, I've submitted the paperwork that I need. Um, so, so, I mean, and I, I say that myself, I have a blue check mark and I got that when, when a lot of journalists were getting verified, but Twitter has suspended mm-hmm. that right now because it is really mired in a lot of, uh, there's a lot of controversy going on. 
on the heels of Charlottesville, uh, all these kind of um, hate groups using Twitter also as an organizing platform. So Twitter has recently verified uh, one of the um, people who organized the the uh, white supremacy rally in Charlottesville, and that created huge outcry. And so and then immediately Twitter suspended that. And there's been a lot of uh, celebrities and athletes, a lot of people are, and just regular citizens too, really up in arms about that part. So, so kind of talk, talk us through that a bit too. Yeah. So uh, this is something that had come across um, my, you know, timeline in terms of um, the conversations that are going on um, with who can be verified and who are not, um, who are still being verified and who are not. And I think, yeah, a lot of this presumption um, is that people are only getting verified if they, you know, just have some kind of large following. Um, but there's also this larger gray area for like, is it that you are more popular or that you have some kind of larger, um, you know, influence um, on the larger, you know, spectrum of the work that you're doing? And there's there's been a lot of reports from folks who um, you would think that should be able to have some kind of blue check mark or valid verification of their identity that have not been able to do that. It's a lot of folks who have tried to go through that process several times have been denied. Um, and the ironic thing is that um, although Twitter had talked about it as being a, a system for, you know, validating that a person is in fact who they say they are, um, but they are at a lot, utilizing a lot more factors for that um, in that not just being identifying that person, but also checking whether or not they're um, putting some kind of value on um that person's identity as as a part of Twitter as a whole, right? Right. So I think is really unfortunate, and I, I'm I'm glad that they're um, you know stepping back and thinking through their systems. But I feel like with many things that Twitter brings on, it's a little you know too little, too late, um, and we'll see what they you know end up implementing in terms of uh, kind of rectifying the issues that they have with this verification system. Um, but I think right now it's it's really um, they're, they're just really not putting themselves in a good position. Right. I, I agree. And, and it seems like along the way, um, verification became conflated with uh, a personal endorsement from Twitter. So I think when, mm-hmm. when those two things melded in users' minds, I think when we saw people who were uh, even controversial figures, much less members of hate groups and things like that. When we saw those people getting uh, this blue check mark of endorsement, that's when, you know, a lot, understandably so, a lot of people got really, uh, really upset and confused by that. Uh, to me, it seems like there's another story here, and that is um, there is so much conversation about allowing hate speech on Twitter and kind of this narrative arc of um, the right to say anything you want and free speech and all that, but then also having people, I don't know, relatively absolved of responsibility for doing so. And so we have, you know, a really interesting and kind of non-stance from Twitter, in a sense. Uh, CEO Jack Dorsey has come under a lot of fire, and in many cases, rightly so, for for really kind of taking a non-position on this and really not doing much to, uh, you know, to, to protect the safety of a lot of people on the platform. So many uh, really horrible instances of that we've seen in the 
the news over the last several years have occurred because of really violent behavior and threats and things like that over Twitter. So I think that moment we're in, too, is a really interesting one. And I think Twitter at some point uh, is going to have to be forced to make a decision about where they fall on on hate speech and threats and things like that, just because they're, you know, you can block someone, but but they're still... Uh, to me, anyway, there's a difference between someone calling you a jerk and saying, I'm going to block them because they're rude versus someone threatening your life and things that, in fact, happen every day on Twitter. Yeah, um, I think that, you know, Twitter has um, thought that putting a neutral stance on something is is being um you know, neutral, but in reality, the systematic way that they have given um, rights and reference to some folks and and discrimination and blocking other folks um, is just proven the fact that they are, are really not taking a neutral stance. And at this point, they're trying to um, just not say the wrong thing, quote unquote. Um, and I think that that's that's really what they need to start realizing. A lot of the work that they're doing to um, to take on harassment and and being able to um, you know amplify folks that need to uh, be blocked. You know, I think a lot of it has been coming from the perspective of their um, you know the idea that they are revenue generating and they're trying to make sure that they are. Um, keeping people that are keeping their business alive happy, um, but they need to think about the larger ramifications for what that means um, as um, a larger platform for, you know, public communication. um, And they need to kind of like get their, uh, you know, things in order uh, to see what should they prioritize um, over like revenue over, you know, this being a public space for for communication. Right, certainly. Yeah, I I agree. I think it's a really interesting time on Twitter. And and, I mean, a couple of years ago, when they had very high turnover at senior leadership levels, we saw a blog post that came out from uh, an HR leader who and she said, you know, we here is our demographic data. We're not doing a good job. It is a very homogenous workforce here. We're not representing our users very well. Uh, We're going to fix this. Please hold us accountable. Shortly after that woman no longer works there and she was was replaced by somebody, I think, from Apple. So we see we you know Twitter has been under fire for for kind of being the stronghold of really uh, this very homogenous workforce uh, in a very homogenous place of Silicon Valley anyway, and I think this is just yet another example of where we're seeing how that really plays out as a very problematic issue. Yeah, and I think you know we have we have examples of folks who have also left Twitter that were on their engineering team, um, you know, that had been there that have um, made public statements that they um, had made things known that things were problematic um, in terms of, you know, who they're, you know, allowing on Twitter, who they are, um, you know, removing from Twitter and that kind of thing. And um, just having that clarity from the inside um, saying, from a person saying, you know, we, we, this was known, this is something that I have reported and, and this obvious that this is not something that we, uh, that Twitter has still um, taken the time to deal with, you know, 
it's it just makes it a lot more like glaringly obvious that this is not an issue that Twitter wants to deal with um, or has the capacity to, given the demographic of folks that they have working for them um, and their inability to address that issue um, head on, um, regardless of, you know, the few um you know, C-suite type folks that they've brought on uh, to kind of deal with, you know, diversity and inclusion or dealing with, um, you know, kind of trying to make those changes um, with their uh, recruitment and retention. Um, They're really just uh, one of the quotes that the tweets that somebody had mentioned that uh, I thought really speaks to what's going on is uh, somebody mentioning, this is Twitter reorganizing its closet the night before finals. They're trying to bring out all these different types of uh, features that like, oh, you know, we're trying to do some things here. We're, we're, you know, we're trying to keep it fresh. In reality, you know, you're just hiding all of the skeletons in your closet that we know are there. Yeah. um, And and you're refusing to address them. And I think people are just getting tired of it. Mm -hmm. Um, So we will really, uh, you know, continue to see um, how Twitter, you know, continues or tries to address these issues more head on, um, listens to their users um, instead of thinking about um, how they're thinking about Twitter as like a business, um, yeah. you know, which is still, you know, something they have to do valid. But, um, you know, one of the big uh you know, necessities for, for being a business is that you're listening to your users, right? Um, right. And I think that the the further they uh, ignore those kinds of voices, you know, the further away we'll get from uh, seeing Twitter as something that um, that people continue using. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, we've seen the growth of uh, platforms like Mastodon and mm-hmm. other uh, calls to, you know, make mass exodus from Twitter, um, and I yeah. think that those are becoming um, a lot more real threats to Twitter. Yeah. Um, besides the fact that there's such a large amount of user base um, that Twitter has, uh, there's only so much that people can tolerate when it True. comes to their safety yeah. and um, you know their own sanity when they right, right. able to have I, I, public communications. I know. I mean, I'm I. I, I I express all this dismay, and yet I know many wonderful things have happened in my my own life because of Twitter. I've made great friends. I've gone to networking right. events. I was hired to the Chicago Tribune because of Twitter, right? There's lots of things that I can definitely point to, that's, and I know tons of people with stories like that that say Twitter's done a lot of things and connected me with a lot of people. So so there's that, and, and you know, we for that we love it, but but yet they, they need to get our act their act together for sure. I love the, the way you put it about the organizing the closet the night before finals. I think that's really wonderfully, wonderfully put and well said. So it'll be interesting, especially as we, uh, there was just a piece in Bloomberg recently about uh, written by Max Chafkin, who is also a contributor to this program, about how uh, Snapchat has really managed to bypass all of the uh, fake news issues because they keep their their commentary and their news completely separate and they employ journalists, whereas Facebook and Twitter has been so both so mired in the spread of misinformation. So I think Snapchat is a really interesting uh, you know, platform to, to that we have to take very seriously and we have to be thinking about too. So that'll all be very interesting. So Kara, what big um, stories in the tech realm are you keeping an eye on in the week ahead and what should we be looking up? In terms of Twitter specifically, or anything, just you are you are in it. You're on top of all things. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I think 
Because we've gotten through the big iPhone announcements for now. We, we've seen some big changes from Twitter. So I wonder, is, is there anything else we should be watching or is it just going to be more of the latest from Twitter? Um, one thing that I have noticed, I think that you spoke a little bit about like the idea that Snapchat is doing things right. I think that part of it is that they've seen what's come out of these previous platforms. Um, so I think that, you know, keeping an eye on on you know, their continued development is useful. Um, Musical.ly, if you haven't heard of that platform, just recently got, um, they got acquired or purchased for about what, a billion music. That'll, um, that'll work. Yeah, that is a um, platform that is, you know, very targeted to much younger um, demographic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's basically a video community and, you know, they, yeah, they've been they've been purchased for, I want to say, a billion uh, dollars. So it, that's, you know, definitely a, a, a different pra- platform that not many people are on or that are being is being seen as like mainstream. Um, but it will be interesting to see more platforms that are coming out um, that are um, hopefully learning from the different ways that um, Twitter and Facebook have like come about and had to deal with. Um, their platform being such a public space and um, how they may deal with um, harassment and, um, you know, ways of keeping their users safe, especially as um, a platform that's, um, you know, holding such a young demographic. Right, right. Well, I I think that's, at this point, I think, ignore the human part of social platforms at your own peril, really. You know, I think it's very real uh, issues of bullying and harassment and and abuse and threats and things like that. That's so very real. So, uh, yeah, I hope other platforms and and new emerging technology um, platforms are are paying attention to what some of these tech giants have have done well or done poorly. I think probably you can learn more from what they've done poorly, but nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Well, Kara Carroll, thank you so much for being with us today. Web developer, community organizer, all things tech. Whenever we have a question, what's going on? What is this? What do we do? We talk with you about it. So thanks, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you very much. All right. So we are going to take a little break. Back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. This is 720 WGN Chicago.